All right. Welcome, everyone. Glad to have you with us on this 15th day of May 2015, and we're welcoming today Dr. Fran Kendall, um, who is a longtime friend of MitoAction and advocate for patients, and we're going to be talking about cannabis oil to treat mitochondrial disease. Before I introduce Dr. Kendall and get a little further into our topic for today and hand it over to her, I just want to remind you how you can follow the slides for today's discussion. So if you're listening to this teleconference, if you go to mitoaction.org, under most recent news, you can find the link to cannabis oil to treat mitochondrial disease. Click on that. And then on that page, you'll see a box that says join us. And you'll notice in that box near the bottom of the box, it says view the slides. Click on that link, it'll open another window and there's your slides. Another little tip is if you um, click on the box in the bottom right-hand corner that looks like it has two arrows, that will pop up the box so that it will be larger so you can view it full screen. Sometimes that's really helpful. And again, today's call is being recorded, and you can find those on the iTunes podcast library as well on the website. I mentioned as well, if you have questions, feel free to wait till our Q&A at the end, or you can email those questions to me, and I can ask on your behalf or call on you at the end. My email is director at mitoaction.org. Again, this is Christy Balsells, and I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Kendall. So welcome, Dr. Kendall. Thank you, Christy. It's good um, to be here today, and thank you for inviting me. Yes. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, as as Christy indicated, um, I am Dr. Kendall. I am a mitochondrial disease specialist in biochemical geneticist. Um, I have, um, I'm currently in a, a private practice, BMP Genetics, here in Atlanta, and um, I've been in academia, um, own my own private laboratory, and have had a very circuitous um, long career um, in biochemical genetics and mitochondrial disease. So. Um, today, we are specifically going to talk about cannabis and cannabis, medical cannabis, in the use of um, in mitochondrial disease and, and certainly um, other disorders, um, one of which is, is seizures, which many mitochondrial disease patients have. Um, before I begin, a couple of things. One, I wanted to um, just give a shout out to uh, a parent and patient advocate, Sebastian Cote, who was my uh, co-author on several of the blogs we recently posted on our website and Facebook page on cannabis. Um, if folks haven't seen that, please um, go there at your convenience if you'd like more details. Today will be a summary of, of these blogs that we've been posting over the last couple of weeks. Um, Sebastian again, is a patient advocate and parent and was instrumental in passing the recent law here in Georgia for the use and possession of medical cannabis. Um, Sebastian um, it could not be with us today. He's traveling, but did provide me with a couple of Facebook um, group um, groups that folks can contact other parents um, and people who are on the front lines of um, dealing with the laws, regulations, and passage of such laws for themselves, their, their children, and for the community at large. Those two Facebook pages are uh, Pediatric Cannabis Therapy is one of them, and the other is CBD for Children with Epilepsy. That's C as in cat, B as in boy, D as in David, the numeric four, Children with Epilepsy. Um, he did want um, to remind me, though, that it's not just for children with epilepsy. Um, they will field questions about other disorders as well. So having um, provided some of that preliminary information and some resources for folks to um, utilize moving forward if they have some um, ongoing questions that are not answered today, either through my discussion or in any subsequent questions, they are a couple of the formats that you can utilize. So um, without further ado, we'll segue into my, um, my slides, and um, I will refer all of you just to the, the front page, which says medical cannabis and mito disease. And so we will we'll jump right into it. Of course, we all have to do our disclaimers these days, um, and so we will um, just pass through that. 
go to our warning slide here, and that's my nephew who's about to turn 16, and I'm sure he'd be happy to see his picture on a, um, a slide in the, in the tub. Anyway, so let's begin by talking a little bit about the historical perspectives of marijuana. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's certainly interesting, but it's not the crux of what most of you folks are, are concerned about in 2015, but just to give a little bit of the historical background, a marijuana and its its usage dates back to at least the Chinese in 1500 BC. So we there may have been uses before that, but in terms of documentation, that certainly dates um, back to that time frame. And we also know that it was utilized by uh, the Greeks and Egyptians as well. So um, we know that in terms of the um, of North America. Uh, it made its way here in the 1600s um, through the Jamestown settlers. And so in, in regards to its ongoing use, um, cannabis was added to the U.S. Um, pharmacopoeia in 1850. Um, and then there was a passage of a marijuana tax act in 1937. Um, there were a number of other uh, different laws regarding cannabis moving forward from there, but it ultimately became criminalized with the Boggs Act in 1952 and the Control Narcotics Control Act in 1956. And so um, despite its early uses, because of concerns about the psychoactive component of marijuana, um, it that subsequently became criminalized and was removed from the U.S. Pharmacopoeia in 1942. Um, as I as I indicated, so if we fast forward um, a number of years from the criminalization of marijuana, um, we identified in probably the 1960s, mid 1960s, that the active agent in cannabis is something known as delta nine tetrahydrocannabinoid, or as most people would know it as THC. And so what we discovered um, even later was that our bodies have receptors inside of it, uh, known as CB1 and CB2, which actually bind with these, um, these agents in marijuana. Um, and after some of that early work in regards to identifying the agents in cannabis, um, there was a movement to change some of the laws and legalizations around cannabis and its usage. So in 1996, California became the first state to legalize medical marijuana. And in 2012, Colorado became the first state to legalize its recreational use. Most recently, uh, on April 16, 2015, um, Haley's Hope was signed into law by our Georgia governor, Nathan Deal. Um, making it the first state in the union to allow the use of medicinal marijuana in eight specific diseases, one of which is mitochondrial disease patients. Now, we will talk a little bit about the legalities in, in more detail later in our discussion, but that's just the basic historical perspective. Um, obviously, this um, marijuana has been utilized for thousands of years by the human population, and it's gone through multiple permutations in terms of its usage and what we have used it for. And obviously, in most recent years, there have been uh, a lot of movement towards its availability for a variety of medical issues. So exactly how does um, marijuana work? So let's, let's go to the next slide titled Mechanism of Action of Marijuana. So as I touched on briefly, Previously, the human body has um, two forms of receptors for cannabinoids. And keep in mind that the word cannabinoid is uh, refers to um, one of many, many different compounds inside of marijuana and similar plants that have certain um, activities or actions um, in the human body. Um, and these receptors, again, are known as CB1 and CB2. Now, we do have... Um, naturally occurring cannabinoids, known as endocannabinoids, um, thus the reason why we have receptors inside of our, our bodies for these components. 
And as I just briefly touched on, there are over 80 different cannabinoids, and they are known as phytocannabinoids um, in the cannabis plant. So phyto is just a scientific term for plants. So that's that's why they're called phytocannabinoids. And the the best known and most psychoactive cannabinoid is THC. So that's that delta nine tetrahydrocannabinoid that I previously mentioned. Now, which ones are most utilized in the medical arena? Well, those are THC, THCA and CBD, um, they are the most widely used cannabinoids for medicinal purposes. So let's just spend a moment and talk about each of those because as time goes on, um, not just in our discussion today, but as more and more information is available and out there about medical cannabinoids, you will be hearing more and more about these particular compounds. So again, THC has been used uh, medicinally as a muscle relaxant, a pain reliever, an anti-emetic and an appetite stimulant. Um, So again, we do know that it has psychoactive um, components to it, and that's when we think about marijuana and its use and getting, quote, high, that's the compound that that results in that that feeling. Um, But again, it has other medicinal purposes and it has been utilized um, for a number of years for those different reasons. So THC, um, THCA is a non-psychoactive form of THC, and it's um, used for anti-inflammatory purposes, anti-proliferative purposes, and anti-spasmodic effects. So again, this is a, a derivative of THC, but it doesn't have the psychoactive um, features of that particular drug. Now, the one that's gotten the most Exposure of late is this CBD or cannabidiol, um, and it is used for seizure control. It has no psychoactive properties. So again, a lot of the uh, recent um, information out there is in regards to preparations with this particular compound because this is what's being utilized to treat children with mitochondrial disease and other refractory seizure disorders. So let's turn to the next slide, titled CBD and Seizure Management. So I I wanted to um, talk a little bit about some of the the most recent data that we have in regards to its usage for this purposes. And and at the annual American Academy of Neurology meeting, um, also known as the AAN meeting, um, held just several weeks ago in Washington, D.C., Um, Data was presented on a recent study um, in regards to the use of CBD for seizure management. So uh, the study that was reported looked at 213 children and and adults with 12 different forms of severe epilepsy, including um, Drave, I just noticed a um, (laughs) a typo, that's actually Drave, D-R-A-V-E-T syndrome, and uh, uh, Lennox Gastel. Now, while some of those in the audience may be familiar with those specific types of seizure disorders, the point of it is they are very difficult uh, seizure subtypes to control and treat. So they targeted this patient population on purpose. And these folks were treated for 12 weeks with daily CBD. So 137 of those 213 individuals completed this study. And overall, what they discovered was there was a 54% reduction in seizure activity in that patient population. So in patients with Drave syndrome, convulsive seizures fell by 53% in those 23 patients with that specific disorder. Um, In the 11 patients with Lennox-Gastel, atonic seizures, again, a specific type of seizure activity with that disorder, uh, were diminished by 55% in that patient population. Now, um, 12 of the patients initially enrolled uh, discontinued the cannabis due to intolerance, um, and, and they cited a number of different reasons for that, including drowsiness in 21%, 
diarrhea in 17%, fatigue in 17%, and decreased appetite um, in 16%. So those individuals um, cited those various reasons for, um, for discontinuing um, the medication. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about some additional experience that we have in terms of um, seizure control, specifically in, in mitochondrial patients um, that we are familiar with on a personal basis. So again, this is, this is a study. Um, this was reported at the AAN meeting, and it's extremely encouraging. But again, I want to report on um, some of my personal experience for seizure management in a, um, one of my patients with lead disease and a progressive encephalopathy. So this particular child was using cannabis oil, and his particular um, oil contained the CBD but also some THC and THCA um, for other purposes, including some of the pain that he um, that he showed or had. So in this particular child would have 12 to 15 seizures a day prior to treatment. And again, keep in mind that this is a child who had been on multiple um, anticonvulsants, uh, multiple um, medications at the same time and continued to still have 12 to 15 seizures a day. After the introduction of his um, cannabis therapy, he um, his seizure activity decreased to um, one up to four per day, most often having about three to four. So on occasion he would have one, but um, again, most often three to four. But this is a marked decrease in his seizure activity. Now, he also had some other um, improvements in his quality of life based on his um, cannabis oil preparation. He had a 60 to 70% reduction in his uh, muscle pain, as documented by complete elimination of morphine therapy um, for severe episodic pain. So prior to the introduction of his cannabis oil therapy, he was receiving um, morphine for severe pain um, outbreaks two to three times per, mo uh, per month. And since that time, since the introduction of the cannabis now about seven months ago, he has not utilized morphine at all. Um, his parents, though, also use a topical THC cream um, anytime he seems to be in discomfort. And so it's a topical cream, which means there's essentially not any or any significant systemic absorption. But this, um, this has shown and eliminated some of his more localized pain and breakthrough pain. Um, overall, his parents indicated he... Um, he has increased awareness, improved demeanor and eye tracking, and increased vocalization. So this kind of segues into some additional information I want to talk about specifically in more detail about mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial um, function and special effects with cannabis oil. But this is a patient, again, with Lee disease who has utilized it for primarily the purposes of seizures, but um, has clearly shown a marked improvement in multiple aspects of his quality of life with the use of this medicinal compound. So I want to, um, want to uh, direct your attention to our next slide, which says Mito and Medical Cannabis. So at this juncture, um, particularly given that um, even in those states for which it has been available, um, Georgia is now the, the first state to um, have it legally available for medicinal purpose, purposes um, for mitochondrial disease. So because of that, most of our information on mitochondrial patients is anecdotal um, because often the parents uh, and patients are receiving it for the purposes of, of seizure control. But what parents are, are, are reporting and other people are reporting is that it appears to improve seizure control, as was demonstrated by my patient, uh, pain relief also as demonstrated by my patient, and improved GI um, functionality. Now, there has been a, um, a recent study 
out of Germany, and this is very recent, again, in the last couple of months. Um, and this is in a, a rodent, so a rat and mice model, that suggests that exposure to cannabis can improve mitochondrial functionality. Now, keep in mind that this is an animal model, that this is a very recent study, and that when you're dealing with these kind of initial studies, while they may be encouraging and hopeful, you have to take them with to some, uh, you know, to take it with a, a degree of, of salt and understand that, again, it's preliminary information. But nonetheless, um, this is hopeful and helpful information. So overall, the study suggested that the, the marijuana or the activation of the brain's cannabinoid system triggered the release of antioxidants, which, again, acts as a cleansing mechanism. And this process um, w was then resulted in the removal of damaged cells and improved the efficiency of mitochondria. So there's also some information that indicates it may eliminate brain inflammation, um, which, again, would be the removal of these damage-type cells um, that can be seen with a number of neurodegenerative disorders, potentially including mitochondrial disease. So uh, without belaboring the point, this is very preliminary data in terms of possible mechanism of actions of cannabinoids, particularly in the brain, um, in patients with any type of neurodegenerative disorder. So again, it may improve mitochondrial functionality by um, triggering the release of antioxidants and eliminating some signs of, of brain and, um, and damaged cells, ultimately leading to some improved efficiency of um, the mitochondria. Let's talk a little bit now about the dosing and safety of um, cannabis. So I direct you to our next slide. Now these are very broad spectrum type of recommendations or, or um, parameters for the use of, um, of cannabinoids. Um, nonetheless, the dosing is based on patient weight and the type of cannabinoid to be used. So as I discussed very early on, there are over 80 different cannabinoids in the marijuana plant. The ones that we have found to be most useful uh, and probably will be most useful in mitochondrial patients for all the reasons we've already talked about is THC, THCA, and um, the, the CBD. So they're typically administered several times per day. Now, what are some of the side effects that are that are being reported in in case reports or through parental feedback? Um, very similar to what we have seen um, in the AAN um, report about the um, Dravet and Lennox-Gastaut seizure disorder um, study. So we're hearing about drowsiness, fatigue, agitation, and diarrhea as the most common side effects. Now, one thing to to keep in mind, and this is why. Um, the dosing in the, mod the, the regulation of cannabis oils, in particular THC, must be monitored closely, is that 10% of patients on very high-dose THC can experience seizures. So again, we're utilizing this as a component of seizure control, but if the dose is too high, it can actually elicit that problem. And how do we, what mechanisms do we utilize to administer these various cannabinoids? Well, there's a whole host of, of different um, vehicles that can be utilized. So some people util, um, smoke these different cannabinoids, uh, use edibles, meaning placing it in, in food products. Uh, again, for seizure management, it's primarily the use of this cannabinoid oil. There are tinctures and topicals in the form of patches, gels, salves, or cream. I mentioned my specific patient who is on two forms of it. One is the canna, um, cannabis oil, uh, and then his the topical THC um, cream that his parents are utilizing 
for his localized pain. So again, there's many mechanisms of administration for um, these different cannabinoids, and it really depends on what the problems are at hand, the patient, um, and what you're attempting to, to address with the use of these medical um, cannabinoids. Now, the legality surrounding um, the use of medical cannabis and just marijuana in general, as we touched on early on when I um, talked a little bit about the historical references in regards to the use of marijuana, it are extremely complex. So again, as I um, stated when we first started our discussion, documents dating back to the early 1600s provide evidence that marijuana was brought to North America by the Jamestown settlers. And since that time, marijuana, the American populace, and certainly the judicial system have had a complex and at times tumultuous uh, relationship. Now, the continued use of the cannabis through colonial times into the first century of the U.S. history led to the addition of marijuana to the U.S. pharmacopoeia in 1950, as I indicated earlier. But after that time, there were increasing concerns about its usage, ultimately leading to its removal from the pharmacopoeia in 1942. And then again, as I stated, um, both the Boggs Act and the Narcotics Control Act of 1956 led to its criminalization. And so following that criminalization, um, there was a number of antitotal data that um, that indicated there were medicinal benefits of cannabis. So following that, as again stated previously, California became the first state to legalize medical marijuana in 1996, and Colorado became the first state to legalize um, its recreational use in 2012. And again, most recently, Georgia um, legalized it for medicinal purposes in eight diseases, including mitochondrial disease. Now, let me direct you to the next slide titled General Legalities. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this complex set of laws and, um, and regulations around the use and possession of marijuana, and it becomes very complicated. Now, I don't claim to have all the answers, and I'm, I'm certainly not an attorney, um, but I will just do some summarization so that folks have a general understanding of the complexity of the situation as it exists, exists now and where it's headed. So the most important thing that you need to understand that right now under federal law, cannabis is still a scheduled one substance and it is illegal. Again, this is under federal law. But the state specific legalities regarding marijuana are complex and varied. Um, however, the current administration has provided amnesty from legal prosecution for patients and states with laws allowing legal medical marijuana provided those states acted strict regulatory measures for overseeing their programs and provide safeguards to protect children. So, Having said that, let's look at what's out there in terms of the individual states. So, currently, 23 states have comprehensive medical marijuana programs. Um, 13 states have limited programs which restrict the amount of THC allowed in available products and limit the mechanism of delivery to oil. In these 13 states with restrictive programs, Patients can only acquire their cannabis out of state or risk prosecution under federal law. Um, however, and Georgia is one of those, and I will talk about our new law specifically in just a few minutes. Um, but some companies are shipping their product to other states. But you need to keep in mind if, for example, you are in the state of Georgia and you have um, have completed the paperwork that allows you for yourself or your child under the uh, regulations to possess uh, medical marijuana, that if you um, 
get the substance shipped from one of these companies. Um, that may be a temporary situation because these states may face prosecution by the DEA if they elect to enforce the law. So again, there are companies in states legal to produce the cannabis, uh, and some of these companies are now stating that they will ship the product. Uh, but again, that may not be something that's, some, that's going to be available long term um, because, again, it is under federal law still a controlled substance. And if the DEA decides that they want to enforce um, the law, the federal law, these companies will be shut down. So that what that will mean, for example, is if they, you're a patient in Georgia, um, right now you may have to go to Colorado, for example, to get your supplies um, in order to use it legally here in the state. So just this little bit of information clearly indicates that uh, and, and shows the complexity of the legal system surrounding the use of medical cannabis. So I want to direct your attention to the new Georgia law just to show you specifically what we've enacted here in, in our state um, and where we're headed in our state. And this will likely be the case, and similar programs will likely be rolled out for other states as well. And in terms of the legalities, uh, I'll finish uh, in regards to the legalities a little bit about the federal law and, and some changes that may be coming. But here in Georgia, Haley's Hope Act, um, consisting of three components, was signed into law on April 16, 2015. And again, um, the parents in our state were instrumental um, in getting this passed. They were relentless. Um, they, they tried last year in 2014 and failed, um, and then just were, were dogged, dogged about it, and they finally got it passed. Um, so kudos to their efforts um, for themselves, their children. So, again, the law consists of three components. So the first part of the law dictates that, that the state participate in a drug trial which is evaluating the effectiveness of highly purified CBD in liquid form created by GW Pharma in seizure patients. So we've already talked about the, um, both the anecdotal and the recent study reported at the AAN about the improvement in seizures, but that's one study. So as part of our law, we want to participate that, and that will be rolled out in, in coming months to year. Um, in terms of our participation to gather more data in regards to its medical efficacy. So that's the first part. The second part indicates that, that um, patients can possess up to 20 ounces of oil with no more than 5% THC with at least the same amount of CBD for patients with one of eight qualifying conditions, including mitochondrial disease. So it's not just patients with mitochondrial disease with seizures, seizures is actually a separate category. So some of the other diseases in, in, that are, um, that you can possess medical marijuana in Georgia include cancer, ALS, seizure disorders, MS, Crohn's disease, Parkinson's, sickle cell, and as previously stated, mitochondrial disease. Now, here in Georgia, patients with one of these conditions can legally possess cannabis oil if they register with the Department of Public Health and carry the registration card with the cannabinoid product. In order to register a, a, a doctor, your treating physician must support and sign documents attesting to the presumed benefit of cannabis use in a given patient. Um, when our law was signed here, the, the first patient to receive the official registration was um, one of my patients. And so the day before the law signing, I had uh, the typical, you know, runaround craziness trying to sign all the paperwork and get it back to the, the state so that it was there in time for the law signing. But it has to be, um, 
you have to have approval by a treating physician. And it has to be a physician that you have a long-standing relationship with. So that's not clearly defined, but they're trying to prevent people from setting up shop where they meet somebody for five minutes and, and you sign a paper that says, yes, they can get medical marijuana, and they go off. Uh, you know, and, and obtain it. Um, so, again, it's about a, a long-standing physician relationship with a patient and that physician feels that this patient would definitely um, benefit. So keep in mind, though, that that cannabis oil, as I stated, is a Schedule One substance, and it cannot be prescribed by an MD, merely recommend it. Um, Now, the, when people have the oil in their possession, again, the oil must be in a pharmace, uh, pharmaceutical container. It has to be labeled with the percentages of THA and, and CBD in the mixture. And as I indicated, it can, a person cannot um, possess more than 20 ounces of the oil, and it cannot contain more than 5% of THC with at least the same amount of CBD. So... You can see that our law is really allowing patients to possess it, um, but we've got a lot of regulations around who and how you can even get the paperwork in order to, to possess it. So the last component of the law um, legislates the creation of an in-depth plan by the end of the year, so December 31st, 2015, for the development of Georgia's in-state cannabis cultivation and distribution program. So the long-term goal for us here in our state is to develop our own program for growing, um, producing, distributing the, the medical cannabis products so that our um, state population does not need to go outside to Colorado or another state to obtain the um, the medical cannabis if their physician feels that they would benefit from its use. Now, again, as, as you can clearly see from my discussion about the legalities, this is a real mess. And so from state to state, it's different. Some states it's completely illegal, others you can have it for recreational purposes, others for medicinal purposes. So how do we, you know, how does this get rectified? How does it get less confusing? Well, it's only going to get less confusing if we enact some federal regulation. So um, go to the next slide, and it's titled Carers Act of 2015. So. Um, The statement to keep in mind, as I already said, is there is no unifying federal law regarding the medicinal or recreational use of marijuana. The CARES Act, which stands for Compassionate Access Research Expansion and Respect States Act of 2015, was recently introduced into the House of Representatives, um, and it is H.R. Bill 1538. Um, this was introduced by Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee. Um, what are the goals of this particular bill? The goals are, allow, are to allow states to legalize marijuana for medical use without federal interference, permit interstate commerce in the distribution of, in particular, CBD oil, reschedule marijuana to a Schedule II, which indicates that it's, it has medicinal purposes, um, allow banks to provide checking accounts and other financial services to marijuana dispensaries, even allow VA physicians to recommend medical marijuana to veterans, um, and eliminate barriers to medical research. So for patients, this law would allow them to legally travel with prescribed medical cannabis without fear of prosecution or imprisonment. Um, and overall, the bill passage would ease federal and interstate regulations currently interfering um, with access of many patients to a potentially helpful substance. So, again, without the pass passage of federal regulation um, that allows for a unifying federal law 
um, we will continue to have problems in terms of patient access. And so certainly if patients and families um, would like to support this bill, um, they should just simply contact their congressman. And it's again, it's H.R. Bill 1538. So what we know so far, again, is that medical marijuana appears to be effective in the treatment of, of a number of, of medical problems, including improvement in seizure disorders, control of pain, and other, um, other quality of life parameters. Um, what we also know is that the legalities around it um, are a nightmare, and that, again, until federal regulation um, is enacted, we will continue to have problems. The next component of issues that we, we deal with um, in regards to cannabis oil is the, um, is the last part of what I'll talk about, um, and that is about procuring a safe cannabis product. Um, so with medical marijuana kind of being primed for the next um, billion-dollar business, um, Unfortunately, this has attracted a number of, of companies and people who are driven purely by financial gains and not necessarily the best interest of customers uh, and consumers. So it's very critical, particularly now where there's a lack of a lot of laws regulating um, the, the product production, that, that if you do or are able to access the use, that you do your due diligence and ask questions before using any cannabis product. So you need to find a legitimate vendor. Um, you certainly need to know the lab that is testing the cannabis product and know which laboratory tests are needed to ensure a safe product. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about this um, right now, primarily for time purposes. It looks like um, um, we might be running out, out of some time right now. But just a couple of comments about the testing, the product testing. And so I'll direct your um, attention to the very last slide. Before I do so, though, um, in terms of procuring a safe product um, and, and looking for vendors that appear to be legitimate, I would direct folks to the Facebook blogs that I mentioned earlier um, because the parents that have been utilizing the product safely for months to years um, have that information available to us. And I, I will be accumulating that over coming months um, in anticipation of, of, of treatment of various patients, um, but I don't have it at my fingertips right now for the purposes of today's discussion. Um, but again, there's a couple of things that you need to know about the, the product testing. So um, you need to know how concentrated is the product. Um, has microbial testing been completed on the product that you're about to utilize for yourself or your children, meaning is there fungus, mold, bacteria, yeast in your product? Um, these cannabinoids are extracted out of the plant using um, chemical methods, and that we utilize things like ethanol, butane, hexane to remove it from the plant. Um, and you have to make sure that there's no residual um, chemical compounds in your product, uh, and so you need to do residual solvent testing. The other thing that you need to keep in mind is something called heavy metal testing. So cannabinoid, um, uh, cannabis plants are known to extract all sorts of toxic agents from the, the environment, which um, can be a good thing for the purposes of the environment at large, but in terms of um, your, your usage of a product from that plant, not so much. So you have to make sure that you know whether the plant is grown outdoors um, or indoors. If it's in a greenhouse kind of environment, it, you won't have to worry about residual arsenic, mercury, or lead in your product. Um, and so, again, these are the, the things that you, you have to, to ask and make sure in terms of product safety. Um, but 
you know, there are many, many vendors out there who are jumping into this game, but again, there are a number that have been utilized by patients and families for many months to years, um, and contacting some of these, these groups that are utilizing these vendors will go a long way in, in making sure that you have access to a, uh, a safe product and something that um, won't do, do any harm to you and your children in terms of your use. Um, so that is basically what I would, wanted to present today. Again, I know we're running a little bit behind. Um, I know I've provided you all with a lot of information, but I think the things you need to just take away are that cannabis, medicinal cannabis, um, is being utilized in mitochondrial patients, primarily for seizures, but for other purposes as well. We are the first state here in Georgia to allow um, the use for mitochondrial patients, so I am sure that I will be gathering more data. Um, the, um, the legalities are complex, so know your state laws. Um, we don't want any of our families getting into trouble uh, utilizing medical cannabis. And, of course, when you're trying to find a product, make sure that it's safe and utilize well-known and respected vendors for that purpose. So at this time, um, I'll turn it back to Christy, um, and we can uh, have some time for some questions before we end for the day. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, um, Fran. This is really informative and I think um, provides actually a lot of hope for patients with mitochondrial disease beyond just seizure control as well. And uh, before I open up the lines for callers, a couple people emailed questions, and really they several people were asking the same thing, which was to dig a little deeper into um, maybe just your experience with how the CBD oil has been helpful in patients who don't have seizures but perhaps have symptoms of dysautonomia or muscle spasm, you know, and, and if that changes the treatment approach or the dosing approach. Um, do you have any insight about that? Um, I, not much, and, and that's simply because um, the, most of the mitochondrial patients that have utilized it to date are those who are using it for seizure purposes. But what we do know is that um, they are getting some secondary effects, like I indicated. So not so much about autonomic dysfunction. I, I if that's a good question. I can I can talk to some of the families and see if there's been any improvement, um, because most of the kids who uh, are pretty severely affected from a neurological perspective, and they certainly have autonomic dysfunction. Um, muscle pain has improved, um, as has just general GI motility issues, but um, not again, not nothing that I've heard about for um, in regards to muscle spasm specifically. Um, in terms of dosing, indeed it would, um, because the CBD is used primarily for seizure management. So if somebody had more um, muscle pain or, or muscle symptoms, you probably would use more THC and THCA. Um, but, you know, that's, that, again, is an area that to some degree it, it's um, – it's an art as much as a science. And remember, the science is, is very early in terms of the medicinal usage. So physicians like me don't have, um, you know, five years of experience with patients providing or, or coming up with a, a, a formulation that's best for their patients. This will be something mm -hmm. that will be coming, but not something we have a lot of experience in right now. It sounds like those other Facebook groups that you mentioned at the beginning may be a good place to ask some more questions, too. Um, Dr. Kendall, say the names of those groups again, if you don't mind, that Sebastian Cote had recommended. One was CBD, the number four, epilepsy for children. And tell me the other one. Um, yes, that's, that's what it is. It, it, it's a numeric for Christy, just in case okay, they get that. And the other one is pediatric cannabis therapy. Okay, Perfect. So the, the parents um, that have been involved in this process, both passing the law um, and, and just utilizing it for their own children, you know, they at some point I, I hope to equal their knowledge base. And Sebastian has been um, instrumental in educating me to, to get to this point. Um, but but yes, they, he he encouraged people to um, to join the group or, or email, and they will do their best. Of course, if they get inundated with 10,000 emails, it might take them a little while. Right. 
but I, that's that's great. I mean, honestly, I think that the patient community and for mitochondrial disease is, you know, patients and parents are quite accustomed to um, paving the way, as you know, in in learning from each other and in figuring out what you know what things mean. So it's really fantastic to be able to have that type of information. Um, one more question before we open up for the callers, and this may be. Um, more specific, Dr. Kendall, but in case other people have the same question. So use of industrial hemp and a high CBD oil that's low THC, do you, do you, I didn't hear you speak about that directly. Have you had any experience with that or do you know anything about that? Um, industrial hemp? I just, no, not, not personally. Um, is there a specific question about that, Chrissy? I mean, I know that with with hemp products, um, you do have to be concerned because hemp does absorb everything from the soil, so you can develop problems with with heavy metal toxicity, mm. with arsenic and mercury and lead, and some of the things that I talked about. Again, hemp specifically has issues with that, so you have to be very careful about those products. Okay, I think that answers the question. Let's Let's open the um, lines up and take some questions. So before I do that, let me remind everybody that you can use star six to mute and unmute your line. So please be considerate if you have dogs or kids or lawnmowers or, you know, Muzak at work. Just use star six so that we can hear everyone as as effectively as possible. So bear with me and we'll um, take some questions. Okay, and this is just like a virtual classroom, so we'll just um, be patient with each other, and I'll remind you to use star six to mute and unmute your line. So um, who would like to ask the first question? I would love to make a comment. It's Sherry. Okay, go ahead. Um, I am an adult myo patient who did live in Colorado and did use um, medical marijuana products um, it is a huge learning experience to know, you know, how to work around that. And it did help with um, a lot of the muscle pain and the dysautonomia. One of the interesting things was the, the help it gave with fatigue. Some of the products, you know, again, you have to learn about different percentages of different things. A sativa gives you energy where an indica, you know, type of product will put you to sleep. And so, you know, when you learn about the different percentages and you work with someone who is very specific in giving you information about how much is in each piece of candy or how much is in the salve, you know, it really does help. But it was amazing for muscle spasms and nausea and pain. Well, Sherry, that um, that's really appreciated your personal experience. So um, thank you. And it sounds like... Uh, there's a little bit more expertise coming from Colorado, um, you know, where the, there's a perhaps a motivation for people to be a little bit more specialized also. Um, yes. But that that is certainly helpful. Um, I would encourage you, Sherry, to post some of your comments on our Facebook page too so other people could maybe ask you questions or, you know, read that also. Um, thank you. Okay, I'll remind everybody one more time, we can hear you if you're talking or anything's going on in the background, so be sure your line is muted using star six or just mute on your own phone. Who could ask our next question? I'd like to make a comment. This is Jan from Rim Forest, California. Hey, Jan. Uh, nice to hear your voice and hear this subject being discussed. I've been using medical marijuana cannabis oil for my son, Ray, for the last three years with his neurologist approval. Like I said, we're in California. Uh, In California, there are doctors who will give medical marijuana recommendations, and they don't need to be your regular doctor. Many of the regular doctors don't even want to get involved giving the recommendations. Uh, also be aware that it's important to follow your your state's regulations, keeping in mind that Tommy Chong was sent to federal prison for transporting bongs over state lines. And the seizure control with the cannabis has been 
phenomenal. We're going days and weeks at a time without seizures uh, using the oil, and we do make sure that it's extremely pure, and we do not use edibles. Many times when people are making edibles, they use sugar in the product, and they're unpredictable because they go through the digestive system. Uh, that's just a little bit of my insight. And like I said, thank you so much for this subject matter. Um, hi, Jan. Well, I, I remember meeting you in California and hearing a little about your son and um, really appreciate you sharing those comments. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody have a question for Dr. Kendall? Hello. Hello? Hello? Yep, okay. We got two two folks jumping on for a question, so we'll take turns. So um, jump right in, one of you, and go ahead. This is Erica. The other person could should go ahead first. Okay, go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, my name is Mary Ellen, and uh, I have – hi. Um, I kind of have an unusual situation. Um, I don't have inherited mitochondrial disorder. Um, I I took a a, a drug uh, called Valproic that's given to people. Whoa! Somebody's got a horn honking. Say say the name of what you took again, Mary Ellen. Um, I took a drug commonly used for seizure disorders. It's mm-hmm. called Valproic uh, acid. Uh huh. I don't know where all this sound is coming from. It's not from me. There's dogs barking and. Oh, okay, so we thought maybe that was from you. So let me just remind everybody, please use star six to mute your lines just to be safe. That really helps us be able to hear everyone. Thank you. Thanks for bearing with us, Mary Ellen. Go ahead. So you were okay. you were taking Vaproic Acid. Right. It's commonly used for uh, people with seizure disorders. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it caused uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. So... Um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, so many parents with children with seizure disorders, if they know that the drug they're giving their child to control the seizures is causing mitochondrial uh, dysfunction. Well, Dr. Kendall, I'll let you comment on that. Well, basically, Velpro, among medical specialists like myself, we are well aware, well aware that Depakote or Valproic acid is toxin. Um, but I can't speak for, you know, neurologists in, in, or other treating physicians in, in other parts of the, you know, medical community. But I, I do have some patients on Depakote, and sometimes we make that decision along with the family to treat them if they're intractable and it's the only thing that manages their seizure disorder. Right. We try to avoid it. it. It can cause lots of problems. There are reports of acute liver failure um, and, and certainly, um, you know, uh, severe hyperaminemia. So, again, we are familiar with that in the mitochondrial well, community, but I can't well, speak to other practitioners. One of the things that affected me, I, I wasn't told that 65% of patients taking Valproic had thyroid abnormalities, and, of course, I developed thyroid cancer, papillary carcinoma. So, in addition to the in addition to the mitochondrial dysfunction, I also got thyroid cancer. And because it's so prevalent, 65% of patients taking it develop thyroid abnormalities too. I just wish I'd been warned. I, you know, it's. Um, I I know that you know, like you said, there are patients that um, it's the only thing. It's retractable. They can't control it without it. Um, but that specific um, anti-epileptic has has a really really high um, uh, uh, thyroid, you know, affecting the thyroid more than uh, similar types of anti-epileptic. Um, um, yeah, so pretty, pretty scary stuff. And, and I was wondering if that would... Uh, Mary um, Ellen, let me just, let me remind everybody, we're getting a lot of background noise, so please use star six to mute your line so that we can have the best call quality as possible. Just go ahead and hit star six to mute your phone. Thank you. Okay, go ahead, Mary Ellen. Um, and um, I haven't been able to find anyone to treat me um, because of the drug, in, you know, the drug induced. You know, it's not it's not an inherited oh. disorder. I wasn't born with it. Um, 
so, so I was just wondering if, if anybody knows any place or the doctor knows any place that treats adults with um, uh, drug-induced mitochondrial dysfunction. Dr. Kendall, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that, that certainly some um, some institutions will only um, treat um, cut wow. inherited or, or gene-oriented um, or gene-diagnosed mitochondrial disease. Other practitioners will at least, um, you know, we some of us recognize that, that you know, there, there, the literature is clear about certain mitochondrial toxicity, such as HIV meds, certain statins, that type of thing. Um, right. Whether or not, you know, can't tell you who specifically would, would you know, would be open to looking at your case and deciding and de- trying to determine if they felt indeed mitochondrial toxicity was the cause for your long-term issues and whether or not, you know, they could be to you. Right. I haven't been able, I've been looking around, I haven't been able to find any place in the United States, um, and which is really scary, you know, because um, I've had this since I took the drug, and ironically, I was given the drug because um, I had sleep apnea, and they wanted it to help me sleep. So um, they didn't know I had sleep apnea because they didn't do the test, and they gave me Depakote to kind of make me drowsy, and it didn't work, so they doubled the dose, and um, they just kept increasing the dose until I didn't wake up uh, anymore. So um, now I'm sort of stuck. I have no, I have nowhere to go, and um, and uh, it's been like ten years of this. And a doctor finally said to me, you know, this this appears to be mitochondrial dysfunction. We have some tests, and and um, really, really scary because I, I, if you know of any place in the United States that treats adults with uh, drug induced, yeah, you know, I'm not saying me specifically, but any adult. Um, that uh, if you know of any place in the adult with drug-induced mitochondrial dysfunction, you know. So Mary I'll, Ellen, I'll Mary yeah. Ellen. So, um, and I'm going to put everybody else on mute just for a second to help us with the call quality there. Um, so, for Mary Ellen and anyone else who actually has some additional questions like that, which I think are really important questions, if you would like to email, um, we have a support hotline that is MITO411, the numbers, M-I-T-O-411 at mitoaction.org. And um, that goes to a network of volunteers who are really well connected. And we have a list of um, specialists, and certainly we are not in a position to you know, make an appointment for you, but can give you that kinds of information, as well as maybe give you some guidance on some things that managing mitochondrial disease you know, things you can do even without a a specialist. Um, So, Dr. Kendall, um, I think one final question, and then we have to wrap up. So one other question that came in is um, touching back on access. You know, you talked about those laws, and I will say that in helping advocate for patients, and this has been very helpful, but some patients will say, well, you know, my doctor says they're fine to recommend it, but that's all they'll do. And so then what? I mean, what do patients do? Do you have any insight about that? Well, again, it, it, it because it's so complicated, um, you know, do- doctors w- might recommend it, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, it, it, so, for example, if you're uh, in, in a state like Georgia where you have a mitochondrial specialist, um, like myself, and I think that you have intractable seizures and you have Lee disease and I, I think you would benefit, then I can provide you with the paperwork that would allow you then to obtain the the um, cannabis oil. But if you are in, a, in another state where there's no legalities, whether your doctors locally think that you would benefit or not, doesn't put you in a very good situation. Um, you would have to then, if you wanted to utilize it, um, you would have to go to become what they are referring to these days is, is medical refugees. So I've had, before the passage of our law, I've had patients who left the state, went to Colorado, took up residence, 
in order to treat their child, and that's not always uh, feasible in any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So having people recommend it really doesn't translate into being able to utilize it. And so it, it, it's a very complicated and difficult um framework that we're dealing with right now because of the legalities. And keep in mind, if you would go to a state, uh, uh, if your local doctor says, I think you would benefit, and you go to Colorado, get it, and come back home, if it's illegal in your state, you could risk prosecution. Hmm. So you have to be very careful, and you have to make that decision based on, you know, multiple factors. Well, so certainly. it's not, a, not a, an easy answer. Not and, straightforward and and, and, um, and and frustrating because it's not as if our patients and families don't already have enough challenges already, right? Um, so, you know, um, good information and, and maybe something that we can look a little bit more into. And I noticed also, Dr. Kendall, on your website that you have a three-part series about this. So tell everybody, if you will, about your Facebook page and the URL for your website for some additional reading. Yes, we have our, our website um, we have our blogs placed on our website, and you can access it through our um, Facebook page, but it's bmpgenetics.com um, is our, our website, and then BMP Genetics um, for Facebook page, so folks can can find um, find it through either mechanism. But we have a variety of blogs, but for the last three weeks, Sebastian and I have been talking about the various aspects that I touched on today. So again, I think you know, my closing statements would be is it's clearly a mess <laughs> um, in terms of the legalities and the getting a hold of it and the possession and making sure it's a safe product and all of those things, but I, I still think it's quite hopeful. And clearly, patients are benefiting from its utilization, um, but it's going to require massive effort. Uh, unfortunately, it often falls onto the families, um, as it did here in the state of Georgia. If it wasn't for our local families, this would not have passed. It was their efforts, and I, and I would never state it was otherwise, um, that, that made this happen. So, again, I, I, while people are clearly frustrated and wish it could be readily available, um, recognize that there is hope and, and there's this has motivated us now. We, we're going to be having clear drug trials um, in our state and other places. That And as that information and data accumulates, that will also become its own driving force. So keep the hope and, and faith and and recognize that that this is it, this is something that will be coming maybe not all to our liking in in terms of the time frame but it it looks like it has huge um ramifications for our patient population well uh on behalf of everyone who has benefited from listening to this and who has been helped by you both today and in your practice um, Dr. Kendall, thank you so much for your time and for sharing and preparing all of this information. Again, Dr. Kendall's website is VMP Genetics, and she has a really active Facebook page also, so I encourage you to check that out. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, um, normally this is a first Friday of the month we have a speaker, and then every Friday subsequently is a support group, and those are open, same number that you used to dial in today, same time, noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific, and we welcome anyone to join us at that time. So, But everyone, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you again, Dr. Kendall. Hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you, Christy. Thank you.